Hi, I'm Meg Marco of The Extortion Economy, and I'm this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Pod listeners, this is Wendy here. And hello, I'm Kevin. Thanks for tuning in for another unpacking of one of the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind it. This week's guest has done a lot of unpacking of a pretty complex issue. That's Meg Marco of the Extortion Economy podcast. This is a podcast that examines the money, people, and technology behind ransomware and ultimately exposes the highly developed business-like methods of this form of cybercrime. Yeah, The Extortion Economy is a joint production of MIT Tech Review and ProPublica. Uh, Meg formerly worked for ProPublica, but is now the editor-in-chief of Observer. That's the AmericanObserver.com, not to be confused with The Guardian's title, The Observer, in the UK. The Extortion Economy was nominated for an AMBI Award this year in the category Best Knowledge Science or Tech Podcast. Meg worked with a great team on the extortion economy, including Jennifer Strong, who you hopefully remember from episode 41 of Metapod. Yeah, so one last thing for now. Meg is also the author of Field Guide to the Apocalypse, a satirical guide to surviving the end of the world, which was published in 2005. Surely an indicator that Meg has a sense of humor or maybe even a plan to sell more paper books when the internet breaks down forever? Yep, perhaps. Okay, let's find out more while we still have a good connection via Zoom. So, start the tape. Hi, Meg Marco of The Extortion Economy. And hi. Uh, hi, thank you very much for joining us on Metapod for this particular episode. It's a terrific podcast. It's easily digestible. I listened to it in one morning, which is great. So I think that that is a compliment before you get worried about it. But one of the things that you say at the beginning of most of the episodes is the problem is an epidemic. I almost said pandemic then because we've been hearing that word a lot. But you said it's an epidemic. Can you tell us why... It's been given that term in your estimation, first of all. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it's the sort of thing that we started seeing way before we had a pandemic, right? So the sort of origin of this reporting is that it was, you know, something that ProPublica had published. I want to say, oh gosh, I can't remember the the date, but it was, you know, about a year before the pandemic, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, the reporter Renee Dudley and the editor Dan Golden uh, had noticed that there was just this explosion of ransomware and it was just increasing and it had gone from uh, being a problem that was sort of primarily targeted at sort of individuals and had moved into a place where it was starting to be uh, companies that were targeted. And so they had seen that and decided to do a series on it. Um, And so at that point we were kind of thinking of it as a sort of an explosion. Um, when we were putting the podcast together and thinking of like ways to uh, explain it, we'd heard from different subject matter experts that these things can actually be an epidemic. They can be things that are um, 
have forces that are feeding into them and they can grow. Um, and it's a, you know, sort of an economic epidemic, but that that was a good word to use. And of course, we started to look through history and saw that that was in fact the case, um, that extortion and kidnapping for ransom and things like that uh, were sort of economic epidemics. And so we decided to use those terms to describe what was happening in ransomware. It's interesting, and I think it's in the first episode where you give the analogy of the mafia kidnappings in the 70s and the 80s, and we'll come back to that particular law that you referenced because I think it's an interesting point. But um, before we we come to that, do you think companies and individuals and you know institutions, agencies, recognise how big the problem is generally? I think they don't. They may recognize how serious the problem is, but I don't know that there's a good estimation of how big it is. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The main one is probably that it's just very hard to quantify. Uh, The people who know how big it is are not incentivized to tell us because they're the ones that are profiting from it. So, um, you know, they're not likely to be, you know, have some analytics on what they're doing. Um, that's, that's, that's not a thing. Um, some of the folks that we talked to who started companies came to the problem through trying to quantify it and eventually got into remediation, but they actually started just by trying to understand the scope of how big and how fast it was growing. And, there are many more companies that have a better sense of it now than let's say four years ago, but it's really impossible to quantify exactly how large it is. And uh, the numbers that I've heard that I can't share are astounding, really just truly astounding. And that's inherently a problem in the way that it's tackled, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a problem generally for the type of, um, sort of organized crime that this is it's just it's really the 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 incentives are what they are the money is what it is and it's impossible it's not regulated obviously because it's illegal so there's no economic indicator for this it's just mm. it's just impossible to truly quantify wow hi meg wendy here um You start off each episode noting that the extortion economy is about the money, people, and technology fueling the epidemic, and you talk to quite a range of people. Was it difficult to get these folks to speak with you? I mean, how long did that take? I think you can sense in some of them that um, there's maybe a bit of nervousness or maybe even shame in explaining what they do. Um, others are quite authoritative about it. How did you go about convincing people to talk to you? Yeah, I mean, this is the heart of the problem, right? So my background um, is that I came to sort of cybersecurity as a topic through being a consumer reporter and covering data breaches and fraud. Okay. And a thing about fraud is that it's difficult to actually um, police because people are so ashamed at having been tricked and they feel like it's their fault and they feel like they deserve it. They of course don't because they're the victims of crime. Right. So it was extraordinarily difficult to get victims to talk, uh, for that reason, because they, they felt like it was, you know, that they were somehow complicit in their own victimization, just Mm -hmm. 
basically not true. Um, but then also because of the sort of legal framework around it, right? And the law enforcement framework around it. It's um, sometimes not in their best interest to talk to the media for a variety of different reasons. And so it was exceptionally difficult. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't just me, it was a whole you know, team of folks working on this, trying very, very hard to get folks uh, to feel comfortable enough to talk. And even the people who are working on the sort of like, you know, law enforcement side and sort of remediation side and tech companies and insurers, there's not a lot of incentive to talk. Um, and it's understandable. So it, it was an incredibly uh, long process to get the folks, you know, sort of comfortable and, um, and, and get them to talk. And so, you know, it was an 18 month project to do these five episodes. Um, Just on that, interestingly, you said there's no incentive for them to talk. So why did they eventually, was it just great persuasion techniques by you and your team or did there, was there some slightly more altruistic motive to share the story and what people can do to be more aware of it? I think that uh, it's more the latter, right? Um, when we started the project, um, we had done, ProPublica had done a bunch of wonderful reporting. Um, and then the, the first meeting of this podcast was actually the last in-person meeting that I had. Uh, it was the end of February, 2020. We're all sitting in a room. It was the last meeting, literally the last one before everything locked down. And we, you know, everything was on hold. I went to go edit coronavirus coverage with ProPublica, um, didn't work on this for a little bit. But the pandemic provided this accelerant to the ransomware problem because people suddenly, just as we did, all went remote. And so a lot of these systems that weren't really designed for mass remote work were being employed that way. And it just offered tremendous opportunity for people to take advantage of that in order to remotely access systems and get up to mischief. And so that accelerant brought things like, you know, Colonial Pipeline in the news, like these, these things like just uh, brought it to the public consciousness in a way that when we'd begun the project, it, it hadn't quite been. And so I think that really, um, made people feel like, okay, well, I know one part of this. And if there's a project that is going to try to explain all the different parts in a sort of holistic way, I do want to talk about my part um, and share what I know. And, and so that was, a, I think, a motivating force for people. Um, because a lot of these folks have been working on this for a really long time and had seen it kind of coming and you're just like watching this in slow motion or like, this is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it was like, okay, let's talk about why. And so I think they felt more comfortable than they would have, you know, 18 months before. One of the people that I feel is missing from the podcast and tell me if I'm wrong is an actual hacker. Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say. Um, it is fair to say. We tried to, or at least, you know, I tried to represent them fairly because, you know, what the podcast is about is about the economic system that's operating here. And for them, this is a job. Mm -hmm. And 
they will try to act as if it is a job. They will, they want to be treated professionally. As we kept hearing over and over again, I of course have never dealt with a hacker. So I I'm speaking um, about what I was told by multiple, multiple different sources. Um, and so I think their voice isn't represented directly, but I think their perspective is shown fairly. And, you know, you don't get the impression, at least I didn't get the impression that this is, these are evil people. Um, this is for them work. It's illegal work though, right? It's disruptive work. It's problematic work. It's, it's not okay. Um, but it's a job. And I use photo libraries all the time, stock libraries. And if you type hacker into a photo library, you get someone there. It's a kind of semi-lit room. They've often got a hoodie on and they've reflected code on the glasses that they're wearing. And there are just thousands of those type of pictures, which I'm guessing is not the stereotypical picture of a hacker if we were to find one. Is there a, a kind of a persona that does define a hacker? Are they young, male, from a particular region around the world? Or is that to a generalized question? Um, I ask the same thing of the folks who deal with them regularly on, um, you know, a sort of, um, there's one person in our podcast we talked to quite a lot whose sort of job it is to disrupt their operations and sort of, you know, yep. infiltrate them. So I, I asked a similar question. And it doesn't seem like there is a very stereotypical type of person who's doing this other than it's people who have specialized technical skills. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that the ransomware groups are structured is that there's specialization within them as it, as it would be in a company. So um, you, you have like an organization of some people are really good at getting access to systems and then they sell that access to someone else, right? So it's, there's not one skill set, there's not one personality type. There definitely are countries where it is more common that the folks will be. Um, there are geopolitical reasons for that. Uh, but it's, you know, I asked, you know, is it, is it all male? Is it all female? And no, it's not. It's, um, and when we looked at the forums where folks are talking to one another about it, it has the same sort of drama and, um, you know, tone and feel to a web forum that's about something much more, you know, normal to you and me, like, you know, gaming forum or a hobby forum right. or something like that. It's, they're, fairly normal people just what they're doing is not a normal or legal thing to be doing hmm. yeah is there anything good about the extortion economy and i guess by good i mean potentially useful to society um that's a very interesting question i didn't come away with the sense that this was something that was a, a good type of business for anyone to be in um mm -hmm. but i did get the impression that it's there are certain things that different organizations are doing that are necessary, right? So if you look at the insurance industry, which is kind of how our reporters came to the problem, which is just like paying the ransom fuels the ransom, right? Mm -hmm. But having insurance is how often you pay the ransom. So the insurers are actually feeding the problem. But on the other hand, in order to get insurance, 
you have to have a security audit for your company that you probably wouldn't have if you didn't want insurance. So there are all these sort of circular systems that are yeah. operating and it's difficult to say and not my place to say whether it's, you know, good or bad other than like crime is bad. I think we can all journalists say, you know, that's not both sides in it too much to say crime is not good, but um, these systems are, they're, they're feeding into each other. They're, they're growing and there's good parts of having a security audit and, and being a responsible company and going to insurance. That's, that's good. Um, but then again, if it, you get hacked anyway and you go ahead and pay that, then that money goes to people who use it to, you know, out invest you when it comes to security, right? It's sort of an arms race, a, a, a ransomware group is more well-funded than a public school system. That's just the truth. In, in terms of people's awareness of the problem and what they might be able to do about it, I mean, you, I mean people are individuals, they are also employees, they may be business owners. I mean, there's quite a few layers or levels at which people might be able to do something or not. What was your sense of what people can realistically do about this problem? I think that the way that most people interact with the concept of cybersecurity is through trainings where it's very much like put on two-factor authentication, don't click phishing emails. This is incredibly good advice. Everyone should put two-factor authentication on everything. This is the main takeaway that I got through talking to all of these people. And mm -hmm. um, everyone really should do that and take it seriously. However, people are not perfect and it's not your fault if you are victimized, right? It's not your fault because you didn't have, you know, you you were tricked and you clicked something or some plugin was out of date and not like it's, you know. The idea that we're all dependent on people sort of like self-policing their own behavior in order to stop this is not realistic. We have to figure out ways to actually stop the economy that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's bigger than your two-factor authentication. As much as your two-factor authentication is very important. <laughs> Please, if you take away one thing from all of this, turn that on. How did we get from malware that's affecting individual people's computers to, you know, the infrastructure of our society. How much time did yeah. that take? I mean, this, that's essentially the what the first episode is about. What has happened is a bunch of different technologies have come together to fuel perfect conditions for this to happen. So, you know, the first thing that uh, needed to be invented was the concept of ransomware itself which was invented by this person who actually mailed floppy disks mm -hmm. out. And it, it was uh, the floppy disks were mailed to people who had an interest in public health. Uh, he was an AIDS researcher and people put the disk into their computers. And it, of course, you know, caused the computer to stop working. And if you wanted the unlock code, you had to mail um, some money to a PO box in Panama. That was really the first ransomware thing that happened. It's the first ransom, right? There's lots of different ways in which ransom has happened. You know, Caesar got ransomed. Um, 
But that was this first, like, I remotely have taken control of the system. And rather than like trying to extricate value from it, I have just stopped it from working and doing what it's supposed to be doing for you until you pay me. Um, And that was in the late 80s. The problem with that was there was not an easy way to get the money, right? So with decentralized digital currencies like Bitcoin, that really made it a lot easier to sort of implement this at scale. At first, it started with individuals, but very quickly, the threat actors were able to realize that disrupting a larger system would be more lucrative. And so it has evolved that way. And like I said, the pandemic and the sort of fast, um, unplanned move to remote work offered many more opportunities for those folks to infiltrate systems. And, you know, there's just more people who are not physically present who need to access it. It's just a matter of scale. And it wasn't a planned for event. So it was another catalyst. Would it be fair to say, and here secure, you know, cybersecurity companies say this, but would it be fair to say that the hackers are always one step ahead of their victims? And if so, will it be forever so, do you think? I think it's fair to say the reason, at least as far as I can tell, the reason that is, is because they have the time and the incentive to pay attention to things Right. Um, that the folks whose main business is not security. My main business is maybe running a, a pipeline or running a hospital or running a city. That's my main thing that I'm trying to do. And this other thing is something that is important, but it's not the focus of my work. Even if I have a bunch of folks who are doing an amazing job, like trying really hard to to do that. Um, whereas the threat actors can spend significant time investigating the organization, learning about the organization. Um, usually by the time the attack begins, they've been in the systems and they know it better than the people who work there because mm. they've, they've been in there for a while, uh, just quietly moving around and learning, uh, which is terrifying. It's really chilling. Um, we heard stories of threat actors who had managed to secure the, you know, a copy of the insurance policy. So they knew exactly what the maximum payout was and what the coverage would be. And they had the conference room schedules. And so they would attend the meetings. They would just come to the meetings and learn what they were going to be paid. Um, that's terrifying, right? Yeah. Uh, these, so it's possible for them to be one step ahead because they are very focused on what they're doing. I, I must say that part in the podcast where you, you talk about how they were just lurking for a couple of weeks before they say, okay, right, we know everything that we need to know. Now let's kind of unleash the next level of activity. It's, yeah, I mean, in, you know, somebody could be watching us now. I'm simplifying the problem, but you know what I mean? It's, it's people lurking on people's machines all the time. Is it true Another is it true question, but is it true that lots of hackers do, um, to use a Star Wars analogy, turn to the good side at some point and start working for companies, insurance agencies, and you know government agencies to help them? I know you you know the insurance world is is quite an interesting one in and of itself, but you often hear about they they've come over and they're now helping the federal government with their cybersecurity issues and things like that. I didn't run into that a lot. Actually, okay. Um, I asked a, a bit about it, and I asked um, a few folks whether or not they would consider anybody who, you know, sort of saw the light and decided to make a switch. And there wasn't a ton of enthusiasm for that. Um, folks were okay. circumspect about it, um, and I didn't personally talk to anyone who'd made that transition. 
And that, that's interesting because that kind of leads me to the next question is, and I wonder because of the way the the ecosystem works where insurance agencies have perhaps got one motivation, the company have got another, and you've got the negotiators working there. And you've also got people that perhaps could help in a quite a substantial way because they are ex-hackers. Is there an underlying problem with trust in this ecosystem to use that word around because people don't quite know who are the good and the bad actors or the motivations of everybody? I think that's fair to say. Um, One of the episodes, I think it was four, um, we start out by talking about a sort of remediation company that was presenting what it was doing as um, a technological fix, a more ethical uh, fix because it wasn't, you know, you weren't paying uh, the ransoms. And of course, it turned out that they were the middleman to to paying the ransoms. Uh, and that's obviously not ideal. And, you know, I think one other company that does something, um, uh, does the sort of negotiation and stuff called that, you know, wildly unethical, I think is what he said, um, his words. So yeah, there's, there are strange um, sort of behaviors and checks and guidelines that have sort of developed in this ecosystem because you never know who's contacting you. You never know what they really want. And so if you're a company that's trying to do negotiation or remediation, you're trying to do it ethically, the victims that come in, how did they hear about you is a concern that I kept hearing. And there's one company that we talked to that if the threat actor were the ones that referred them to their company, they would decline to work with them because they don't want to be in a position where they're the sort of legal face of, you know, a a criminal enterprise and they're, you know, they're referring clients, not like affiliate marketing for ransomware, they don't want a part of that. Um, and you could understand why that's, that's really not what they're there to do. Um, so it's just incredibly challenging to figure out what they're doing. And also like if, if you are, uh, you know, either a company or an individual who's helping people and victims contact you, is it a real victim or is it somebody who wants to know what, you know, who wants to know whether or not you do have the technology to decrypt ransomware? You know, they're like, can you decrypt this? And then if you say yes, and it turns out that's not a real victim, then well, then they know and they have to change their ransomware. So it's just it's just the most incredibly complicated space to be working in. And you literally cannot trust anyone. It's an, it's just gaslighting the whole way down. In terms of motivation, I think that you seem to focus mainly on, well, ransom and their financial motivation, but obviously they're stuff going on that's politically motivated. Did you speak with anyone who sort of, you know, at what point in a negotiation process are they becoming aware that something is more than financially motivated? Where's the line there? And and then what do you do? I mean, I think there's uh, maybe it's some of the work in ProPublica that I had read about how some of the insurance policies won't cover some of these acts because they've been considered acts of uh, war or something close to that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm getting at, you know, where is the line between, you know, 
the financial motivation and and something else the if you if you step back far enough you get to something that is very geopolitical mm-hmm. um i think at the individual level it doesn't feel that way uh i i don't hear that a lot but as you back up you and you, you think about you know why is this sort of exploding and why do some of the people always seem to be from these certain specific countries um, mm-hmm. it becomes very difficult to ignore and that's you know why the federal government is start to pay more attention to this um the question of whether or not it is war is a really interesting one and in the last episode we talked to uh, a state senator from North Carolina who definitely was like, we are at war. Like he was like, this is really happening. Like I'm a county commissioner and like I'm being attacked by state actors. And we talked to a mayor whose dam had been attacked by like the Iranian National Guard. And is like, I am a suburb of New York. I'm a tiny town in Westchester County. Like this, this is insane. Um, but it, it, it's just so distributed and weird and random and you don't really know what the motivations are. That guy doesn't know why his dam got hacked. It's absurd. It's, it's almost funny, except that it's completely not funny. Um, so these, these folks that are at the like local political level are experiencing something that when it's extrapolated to the federal, federal level, it's just, it seems absurd. Right. And I think that's how it, that's how it can continue. So, I mean, you spoke with a a negotiator, I believe, in one of your episodes. I mean, someone like that, I mean, at some point, are they realizing that something is more than about money? I don't know that at the individual level, it is about more than a business. I didn't often hear that. Of course, I don't, you know, I haven't talked to these folks. I can't really speak to that. But it's not something that I heard that at the individual ransomware group level that it was something that felt political. In fact, fairly the opposite. There's one particular story that we focus on a lot in the podcast. And, you know, after, you know, disrupting the oil pipeline on the East Coast of the United States, the ransomware group that did that apologized and shut down and said, we are not here to do that sort of thing. We are here to make money. Whether or not that's true, I obviously can't tell you. I'm not sure they could really either, but ostensibly it is because, if you draw too much attention, you're going to draw the attention of the FBI, which, of course, that money got clawed back. How did you sense that people felt the government should regulate or oversee or get involved? A common conversation that we had was like that it was it was difficult to understand exactly what law enforcement is doing because you know, law enforcement is not uh, sort of able to, you know, there's the whole like drugs on the table thing. There's like, it's cryptocurrency. Like they can't really say all the things that they're doing. So depending on who you were talking to, their like level of knowledge into what was happening at the sort of law enforcement level, um, there were many different opinions about how much law enforcement should do and what their responsibilities uh, were. So it's, it's, very difficult to say exactly what more they should do without knowing what exactly they are doing. A very common conversation that we had too was that the incentives for law enforcement are to stop crime 
which is different than helping victims. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about, but then when it was presented to me, I was like, oh, well, that's, immediately that is very obvious, right? So if helping a victim tips off the bad guy and the bad guy is able to sort of escape because I've used some piece of information to help a victim, then maybe I'm not doing my job as law enforcement because I have to look at the bigger picture and try to stop the most crime that I can stop. And so you need to have a different group that is focused on helping victims. And so when we're talking to the ransomware hunter team, their job, their focus is helping victims. That is what they want. Like that's their sole focus. Law enforcement's sole focus is not that. Um, This doesn't mean that they're not aligned in some ways and they can't cooperate and that you don't see public private partnership that's productive. Um, You're not gonna worry that the FBI is referring to you a victim that's not a real victim as an example. Mm. We were given one of the ransom, the ransomware hunter said, okay, I appreciate when the FBI sends me someone because I feel like that's been vetted and I know what that is. Um, and so there are opportunities for cooperation, but, um, but law enforcement's role is to stop crime. Just a quick one on the crypto element in all this. I mean, if cryptocurrencies and the blockchain is part of the problem, what's the solution to that? That's one I definitely don't know. And I think it's why we called the last episode File Not Found, because we found a lot of very interesting things and a lot of very complicated systems and no easy solutions to any of it. Cryptocurrency is a very important development um, in terms of, you know, everything from sort of fintech to gaming to security. Mm-hmm. Like it's, an, it's just an incredible technology. It's an incredible advancement. And it's completely the wild west so it's hard to say oh this is bad and there's an easy thing to do about this and this is a problem like because it's we don't even know all the technologies that are going to be built on the concept of the blockchain it's uh it's not entirely solvable i will say that um the pure unadulterated delight that the fbi has for the blockchain um they, they just like just pure heartfelt love for being able to trace money they they were not conflicted about it at all they (laughs) they love bitcoin so it's interesting on that though because you know the many of the um blockchain and bitcoin evangelists talk about how it's completely secure and everything can happen and you know it's decentralized but here we are discussing how the fbi were able to trace pockets of money through the different blocks, which is somewhat ironic, some might say. I, I found it ironic. I I was I wasn't sure what I w- was expecting when we did the the interview with uh ASAC Chan who's in, in charge of all of that. Um mm. I was like, you know, are, is he gonna be like, wow, Bitcoin is it's really complicated and difficult. Nope. Loves <laughs> loves Bitcoin. Like delightful <laughs> interview, loves Bitcoin, um, enjoys tracing uh, money. <laughs> and I, that was, a little, I guess it was surprising to me. I'm not sure what I was expecting. Um, but yeah, it's, I think Bitcoin has this reputation of being sort of like anonymous and secure and decentralized, but it is traceable. Yeah. Right. And there are things that, you know, there's innovation that will happen and is happening. And, um, you know, we go through that sort of, uh, towards the end of the podcast, um, talk about the different ways that, people who don't want their money to be traced are trying to make it more difficult, but it, 
you know, ProPublica's uh, computational journalist uh, in partnership with uh, a firm that uh, does that type of work, uh, we're able to trace payments. The FBI is able to trace payments. Yep. You can try, but the technology does enable that. Right. You talked at the beginning about the incentive to get people to discuss the problem with you uh, for the podcast. What's the disincentive for people to be involved in ransomware, i.e., what kind of a sentence do you get if you get caught doing this? Well, that's a very good question. And I think it depends where you are and whether or not it's actually a problem for the country you live in. So (laughs) I can't really answer that one, but I will say that what we heard over and over is that the chances of you getting caught are very low. And if you happen to be doing this and you think everything is fine, this is what the FBI said. This is not Meg, but um, think carefully about which countries you go to on vacation, whether or not they have extradition treaties. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we mentioned right at the beginning the, the Italian mafia analogy. And just to explain to listeners, so uh, in the 70s, there was a, a, a law passed in Italy that meant if a family member or a friend or somebody that you were responsible for was kidnapped, they would freeze your assets so that you couldn't pay the ransom. And the number of kidnappings by the mafiosi there dropped eventually over time. And that's a tactic that's been deployed with regards to ransomware. I sense from the podcast that that is a fairly controversial tactic. Can you talk us through the pros and the cons? And perhaps if you are allowed to come off the fence, give us what you think is the best one. Well, the reason we use that example is because I think it's a very easy one to understand the different perspectives, right? So when you think about cybersecurity, often you kind of think about like passwords and computers. It sounds maybe a little bit boring and um, you think about it like, training you had to do. Um, But when you think about, okay, an epidemic of kidnapping, that's a thing that happens. And um, it happened in Italy in the 70s during this time called the Years of Lead. And these folks were getting kidnapped um, if their families could pay. And it was very common. And people were taking self-defense courses. Um, You know, kids were being escorted to school with armed guards. And, you know, finally, after 20 years of this, the Italian government did pass that law and froze the assets of the family members. This was very unpopular because it did cause problems and it did cause deaths and it it was not easy. It also caused the incidence of kidnapping for ransom to go down, but it wasn't without cost. And it's, it wasn't simple. But what is true is that paying ransom fuels ransom and kidnapping or ransomware. Like that is true. So to the extent that you can stop that from happening by stopping payments being sent back to the people who are doing this, because they are doing it for money, that is an effective way to decrease the growth of the business. <laughs> but it is not without cost and it's not easy. Um, and I don't know that I have an opinion about exactly how that should be done. Um, but my takeaway from spending, like I said, this took 18 months, 18 months thinking about this 
was the people who know the most about this are the most intimidated by the groups that operate the most like businesses. The ones that have developed essentially a restaurant franchising model for their software. And the ones that are behaving most like capitalists are the most terrifying, will lead to the most actual harm. And that was a big takeaway for me that scared me. That's very worrisome. I'm curious why you chose to compare it to a, a restaurant franchise model. Um, because it's funny. <laughs> frankly. It is, but I thought, I don't know if most people actually even know how restaurant franchises work. Yes. Um, so so uh, my background, again, I was a consumer reporter. So I, I spent a lot of time um, learning about different types of businesses and mm-hmm. things like that. And The way restaurant franchising works, for those who don't (laughs) know, is that you you are going to open up your restaurant. Um, I don't want to say the name of a particular one because I don't want to associate them like unduly with a criminal enterprise in a way that is unfair, even if, you know, I happen to like their, you know, tacos or whatever um, and would like to use their name. But so you're going to open your uh, Meg's Taco Place and um, Meg's Taco Place company is going to provide you with the materials to make the food. The Megarito. Yes, the Megarito is delicious, incredible stuff. Um, and you're going to buy all of the, the material from them. They're going to provide you with marketing. They're going to provide you with assistance and a business strategy. And then you are going to run the business. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to a, give them, you know, you're buying stuff from them. So that's good. And then you're going to give them a percentage. And like, that's how a restaurant franchising works. So, you know, you can own any number of different, like, you know, 35 fast food places, right? But you don't own that fast food company. That's how ransomware is starting to work. That is terrifying because all of the decisions at the like individual level are not the larger group. They are making whatever decisions they want. And uh, that means that there's not like a higher sort of moral code involved, right? It's, it's very distributed. So where does this all go if it's left unchecked? I mean, will we all be eating Megaritos for the rest <laughs> of our lives? Well, <laughs> Sorry, this is are really great. funny. But <laughs> um, that, that's why we, we talked to a, a geopolitical futurist in the, the fifth episode. We were just like, what, where's this going? It's like, well, you know, as we put more things on the internet, we are exponentially increasing the opportunities for disruption. So, you know, as your car, this is my favorite example that I gave us, as your car becomes something that the company who made your car can lock and unlock, that means someone who infiltrates the company who makes your car could lock and unlock all the cars and say, hey, do you want to let people out of your their cars? Pay us. That mm-hmm. is terrifying. And so I think that we need to think very carefully about what things we are ceding to a company with a cloud infrastructure that are actual, real, physical infrastructure in our lives. The idea that everyone who owns a certain car could be locked in their car until some company pays a ransom is plausible and terrifying. I think the mindset that um, is described by one of the women you speak with, she's talking about writing reviews about like the post attack, like IT support and getting the data back. And this I find 
very disturbing that that's the mentality that's been adopted by a victim. We heard this from multiple people, not just her. It was a thing we heard over and over again, that the threat actors are very businesslike and they provide sort of support after you've purchased the solution from them. And, you know, they're there to help you remediate the problem and they approach uh, approach it as a business transaction and they approach it as if they're sort of uh, had done some penetration testing for your infrastructure and you had not passed. And so this was the fee for that. Um, And of course that's absurd, but that is their way of moving forward and getting money. Pay us, we'll help you out, we'll fix it. Now you've learned, you will make that mistake again. Um, and then people will, you know, if they don't get what they're promised, they'll leave a bad review like TripAdvisor. Or three like, oh, stars. These guys, yeah, right. two, two and a half stars, they broke it and they didn't fix it. That mentality is so strange, but it, I mean, it's in the best interest of the um, the threat actor to have it be as businesslike as possible so that they can just move forward and, and get the money, you know? Mm. Okay, last one then, Meg. Um And excuse my naivety on technology if this comes across as really stupid. It wouldn't be the first time. But does something like biometrics and that advancement of technology and the way we're able to enter systems and authenticate things with fingerprints, eyes, whatever, is that a possible solution in some way because we are more secure because our identity will be something on our person as such? I tend not to think so possibly because I take sort of a dim view of repurposing parts of my body for security and commerce that I personally find that idea to be very alarming. And I don't think ultimately that the problem is one of security. I think the problem is one of incentives. We've created systems where it is a profitable but illegal business to do this. And we should think about how to stop it through creating different incentives rather than just continually um, going down a rabbit hole of like personal responsibility. And, you know, now you need to have your retina be something that is associated with your job. There are jobs where you have to do that, but it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be like, I am a school district, you know, like that level of invasive security shouldn't be necessary for County commissioners. So I I don't feel like that's the solution. Um, I think there are places to start before we get to sort of invasive personal things. But again, that's my bias. I I find those things to be creepy. Okay. So uh, two points then. Thank you very much for talking to us about the extortion economy. And thank you also for dreaming up your franchise taco restaurant business. And we wish you you all the very best for that. But most importantly, thanks for joining us on Metapod. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Meg. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks to Meg for taking all of our questions about the podcast and what she's learned about the ransomware epidemic more generally. For listeners interested to learn more about ransomware and cybercrime, we also recommend The Lazarus Heist, BBC production hosted by journalists Jean Lee and Jeff Wise. As always, you can find more about Meg Marco and this episode of Metapod in the show notes. And if you're interested in our conversation about the Lazarus Heist, that's episode 37 of Metapod with Jean Lee and Jeff White. If you have a friend who loves podcasts and is always looking for something new to listen to, tell them about Metapod. Just go Mm. ahead and tell them we don't bite. Uh, Well, some of us don't. (laughs) Okay. 
And I'll just add that we're not demanding any ransom for this favor either, listeners. Uh, this is true. So tell your friends, listeners, enemies, please, and thank you. Okay, that's all we have for this week. We hope you'll join us next time for our conversation with Beatles aficionado. I think that's a bit of an understatement. Robert Rodriguez. Yes, and you don't have to be a super fan and everyone knows something about the Beatles, so there's no excuse not to listen. And come to think of it, if you want to send us your Fab Four questions or comments ahead of the episode, we'll try and include them. Who's your favorite, Kev? Uh, Let's keep everyone wondering for now, please. (laughs) All right, sounds good. Okay, so for now, that's all from us and we'll see you next time. Cheerio. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May 